The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. Go ahead and open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. You can follow along in the YouVersion app. We're going to be looking at a number of different verses today. They're all in there. And if you're going to use one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you'll find 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 5 on page uh, 712. So it's 1983, and I am with our youth group in the Fayette County High School gymnasium uh, for an evening of some kind of ministry event. I don't remember um, a lot about that evening, but the thing I do remember is, is the end. I remember there was a gospel presentation at the end, and, I, and I've said this before. Some of you may have heard this before, and I only have one story um, when it comes to this, uh, this kind of salvation story. So uh, the presentation was basically talking about how terrible hell was. And the thing that I remember the most, the thing that stuck out to me, was at the very end, as this, as this preacher neared the end of his story, he started talking about in the thing that I remember, and this is just what he said. He said, in, in some Arab lands, like if you were found guilty of a certain crime, what they would do is they would bury you up to your neck, bury you up to your head in the sand, so you'd be neck deep in the sand, and then they would cut your eyelids off. And then he said, and hell is worse than that. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty awful. And then he asked the question, who wants to go to heaven? Right? Um, I know that's kind of like looking back in retrospect, that's a little humorous. And I know that I was, I was not the first person that went up front that night, but I also wasn't the last person that went up that night. So, so we went up front and there was a group of people along the front of the stage in the gymnasium there, listening to people and talking to them and, and praying with them. And for the first time, at least in my life on that night, for the first time, I prayed the sinner's prayer. And I say for the first time because over the next 10 or 13 years, I continued to pray that sinner's prayer because I didn't feel like like, I didn't really feel like anything happened in that moment, if that kind of makes sense. I believe ultimately what took place on that night, I think God spoke to me. I think God, that was something that God used. But I really believe that what I heard on that night was, was a gospel, and it was an incomplete gospel. It wasn't quite the full gospel that... Over, over years and years and years since that, over decades since that, it wasn't quite the full gospel that I've really come to understand that the Bible talks about. So what I want to do today, as I've been thinking about this particular part of the series from 1 Corinthians 2 verses 1 to 5, what I, what I want to do today is just share with you how Paul describes the gospel. And we get a, a hint of it in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 5. And then we're going we're gonna to go through some verses in the book of Romans and talk about it there. But first, let's read 1 Corinthians 2, 
verses 1 to 5 together. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, so it's important to remember that Paul is talking about when he first went to Corinth, when he first arrived in Corinth. We read about this several weeks ago in first, or excuse me, in Acts chapter 18. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. So let's talk about this just for a moment. Paul tells us a few things. He says, I didn't use superior speech in the way that I presented the gospel to you. I didn't talk to you in the way that you are used to as people of Corinth, where there's a skilled speech maker standing in your presence, a, a skilled orator. And as we look back and we think back to what we've already talked about from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Judging by the issues, judging by the way that Paul talks about spiritual wisdom and spiritual foolishness, the people are likely looking down on Paul because when he proclaimed the gospel to them, it was plain, it was basic. There was nothing fancy in what he was talking about compared to Apollos, again, thinking back to Acts chapter 18, who was very gifted, very talented, very skilled. They were looking at Paul in comparison and thinking that Paul didn't have a lot to offer. And as we think about that, Paul tells us that, that he actually made the intentional decision to simply explain the gospel. When he arrived in Corinth, he thought to himself, I can speak plainly and basic or I can use a lot of technical skill in my speech. So it's not that Paul couldn't teach in a talented and gifted way. It's that he chose not to. And what I would encourage you to do sometime this week, I would encourage you to flip back in your Bible to Acts chapter 17 and pay close attention to the way Paul speaks when he's in Athens. Because what we see when Paul is in Athens on Mars Hill, we see a highly skilled speaker. Someone who is trained. Someone who knows how to reason with the people in Athens. But for some reason, when he went to Corinth, he chose not to do that. And it's not really for some reason. We'll get to that in a moment. He says, instead, I came in weakness and fear and in trembling. And Paul is going to then seem weak to the people in Corinth because their mindset is, is so different, is so focused on people who can speak well, who can argue strongly that when someone comes in and doesn't demonstrate that they can do those things, they, they're going to look down on Paul and that's what's going on. And this is why Paul just preaches the gospel. This is why Paul just demands that they follow the gospel. 
And what we're seeing, and Paul's going to talk more about this when we get into the second part of chapter 2, which is next week. What we're seeing is this, this competition between worldly wisdom and spiritual wisdom. Worldly wisdom says you have to demonstrate all these gifts, talents, and skills when you speak, especially in Corinth. And spiritual wisdom says just teach the gospel, just teach the gospel, just teach the gospel, just teach the gospel. So these two ideas of worldly wisdom and spiritual wisdom are colliding together. And as Paul says, he's, he's not out to wow and impress the people of Corinth. That's not what his message is. Rather than rely on his own toolbox, he simply relies on the Holy Spirit. He lets the Holy Spirit do the work for him. And Paul does this because he wants, he wants that, their response, he wants what happens next in their lives to not be traced back to a person, but to be traced back to God. And this is why in that middle section of chapter one, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. See what was happening, the people were tracing back their their response to the gospel, to the individual speaker, to the individual teacher. So we have to ask this question, what, what is the gospel? Paul says he, he taught it not in lofty words or impressive wisdom. He relied on the power of the Holy Spirit to teach this good news. And like I said, we have to ask, what is the gospel? We've probably heard that. Maybe we've heard the phrase good news. What really is that? And today we're going to look at 11 different verses. Nine of them are from the book of Romans. Two of them are from John's gospel. And you may have heard this called the Roman road. It's a really, it's a really easy way to explain the gospel. And if you're in the Version app, again, you'll see all of these verses um, down. But we're just going to start where, where Paul does in Romans 3.23. And if you're using one of those Bibles in your seat back, that's on page 702. So Romans 3.23 just says this. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. That's where the gospel begins. Begins with everyone is sin, has sinned and we all fall short of God's glory. So when we think about that word sin, in the Bible there are lots of definitions. Missing the mark is a pretty common way to think about sin. And as we read through the Bible, we really see there are two kinds of sins. There's a sin of commission and that's the sin where I know I'm supposed to, um, I, I do what's wrong. I know what the rule is. I know what the law is. I know what God is calling me to do. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to commit a sin. I'm going to commit a, a sin against someone else. I'm going to commit a sin against God. I'm going to commit a sin against myself. What this means is a law of commission. I have done something that is a sin. And the reason it's a sin is because it falls short of God's glory. So it really doesn't matter in our mindset how big or small that sin is. 
It doesn't matter if it's a really big, nasty, ugly sin or if it's a small, insignificant sin in our own eyes. Because God is perfect, anything that we do that is not in the perfection of God falls us short of God's glory. And then there's the second kind of sin, and it's a sin of omission. I know I'm supposed to do this thing, and I don't do it. That's a sin of omission. So when we think about sins, when we think about falling short of God's glory, each and every person in this room, because that's what everyone means, that's what all means, maybe your translation, that's the one I memorized it in, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That word all means all. It doesn't mean some people and not other people. It means everyone. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory through sins of commission and sins of omission. And that's an important thing for us to grasp because this word everyone or this word all catches all of us. It doesn't matter if you heard the gospel when you were eight years old and you responded to it and you were immersed and you have lived a faithful, like whatever, whatever your life has looked like after that moment. Prior to that moment of salvation, you were a sinner. You were just as guilty as the person who waits until their deathbed to confess Christ as Lord, just as guilty. That's what it means when it says for everyone has sinned. Everyone has sinned. Doesn't matter when you came to salvation. Everyone has sinned. Then if you flip over to page 704 in that Bible in front of you, you'll see Romans 6, 23. Because we ask the question then, Right, so if I've sinned and I've fallen short of glory, glory of God, what's, what's the big deal about that? Well, here's what Paul says in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's talk about this. There are two aspects in this text. Did you hand me my water? says the wages of sin is death. A wage is something that we are owed. How many of us have a job in the room? Let's see. Okay. Most of us should all have our hands up. So you guys can't even get through five minutes without lying. You're like, isn't it awesome? Right? We have jobs. We all work a certain number of hours, hold certain responsibilities, and we expect whatever that, whatever your business's pay schedule looks like, you expect you're going to be paid for that. And a wage is something that we are owed. We get paid by, our, by the business that we work for because we are owed that. We are owed it. And what Paul is saying is that the wage of our sin the wage of our sins of omission and commission, the payment for that, according to Paul, is death. That's what each and every one of us were owed. So again, whether you came to Christ at 8 or 88 or anywhere in between, the wages of, of your sin, of my sin, the wages of our sin is death. 
But there's a second part of Romans 6, 23. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So if a wage is something that we are owed, a gift is something that we are given. So there's something going on here. All of sin fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of that, that sin is death. The free gift of God is a gift. It's eternal life. But it's important to know that this gift doesn't just come from nowhere. This gift doesn't just come from out of the blue. What Paul says is this gift is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why we have the gift. It wasn't a gift that didn't cost God anything. It's not a gift that we just receive out of nowhere. No, this gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ is through Jesus Christ. It's come from somewhere. It's come through something. So now we have to ask the next question, which is, well, what did Jesus do? How did, how did we get this gift? How did Jesus give this gift? And this is back uh, a page on 703 in that Bible in front of you on Romans 5, 8. This is the answer to the question, what did Jesus do? But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. That's how we get this gift. And we talked about it last week, and I want to talk about it briefly again today. This gift is a gift that was given to us while we were still sinners. So while each and every one of us were not only receiving the wages of our sin, death, each and every one of us are acting in ways that creates my three are chaos, death, and destruction. As, as we are causing chaos in the lives of others, Due to our sin, as we are causing spiritual death in the lives of others through our sin, as we are causing destruction in the lives of others through our sin, while we are doing that, in the midst of that, what Paul tells us, what God through Paul tells us, is that God showed his love through us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So as we're in the midst of this sin, of this, of this sins of commission and sins of omission, what God does is he sends Jesus to us in the midst of that. He doesn't wait until we have it all figured out. He sends Jesus in the midst of that. And one of the things that we need to realize is that our sin doesn't catch Jesus off guard. I've said it before, Jesus knew what he was buying on the cross. He knew exactly what he was buying in you on the cross. We've all bought things and lived with regret after the fact. Every single one of us has bought something and lived with regret after the fact. 
That's not how Jesus operates. Because Jesus knows everything. He knew what sins you and I were going to commit today when he went to the cross. If you flip back to page 662, this is John 3, 16 and 17. And you don't have to be a Christian to know this verse. You've probably seen someone holding up a sign in an end zone if they still allow that at football games. John 3, 16 and 17 say this. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. See, one of the questions that we often ask, one of the accusations we often make against God is if God really loved me, he would, whatever your fill in the blank is. And I would encourage you to do a little thought exercise for you would be to ask the question, how do I fill in that blank? What's the thing that I'm waiting for? What's the thing that I'm waiting for God to do before I'm going to commit my life to him, before I'm going to act in ways that are, that are aligned with what he's calling me to do? What's the thing in your, what's your fill in the blank? What are you waiting for? And God, through John, in John 3.16, is really telling us an important thing here. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God doesn't need to prove his love for you. Will you let that sink in for a moment? For those of you who are waiting, for those of you who are resistant to God, God doesn't need to prove his love for you because he already has. He's already given you his son. He's already solved the real problem with you, which is your and my sin. That's the problem. He's already fixed it. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. This is why, this is why Jesus came. To save the world. To save sinners in the midst of their sin. So that we might do something with that so that we might respond to that. And we ask, you know, what does that response look like? Go ahead and go to Romans 10, verse 13. That's on page 703. Simple. Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the response. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. When we recognize that we are in this place where the wages of our sin is death, and we are living in the reality of that death, what we are being called to do is recognize that God has sent Jesus to die for us and to cry out to him and call on the name of the Lord. And when we do that, what this says is we'll be saved. And that's, that's it. And I know that some of us are, are, are struggling, like that sounds too easy. Some of us think, well, what about, what about baptism? Where does that come into play? I didn't put this in my notes, but it's interesting. If I flip the page back to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17, it says, For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news. That doesn't mean that we are not baptized in our response. And I want to be, just be really clear about this. The response that we make when we enter into a relationship with Christ, the example that we see throughout the New Testament is people are immersed. People are baptized. That's what we see in the scripture. But what we are called to do in response to our sin is to acknowledge that Jesus can save us. That's what we're called to do, to call upon the name of the Lord. I was in a conversation with a friend over the past week who's been going through some pretty difficult times. And what she said was, all I can do is cling to Jesus right now. That's all I can do. And what I want to tell you is that's enough. And when we are in this space where we are aware of our sinfulness, what God wants us to do is cling to Jesus, is to call out to Jesus. Romans 5.1, which is on 703, says this. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. So when we call upon the name of the Lord and we're saved, Romans 5.1, we've now been made right in God's sight by faith. So when God sees us, he no longer sees this person who is worthy of the wage of death, what he sees is a person who has new life because of what his son Jesus has done. That's what he sees in us. And this too is good news because maybe this is just me, but there are times where I don't feel like I'm living in new life. There are times where I don't feel close in my relationship with God. There are times where that connection seems to be missing, where I don't have this peace. 
And if that's you, what I need to remind myself of, and I want to remind you of this morning, is that God doesn't see it that way. That's a one-sided perspective. When we have entered into this relationship with God, God no longer sees us as someone who's, who's worthy of a wage of death. He sees us as someone who has received this gift of new life. And the second part of this verse is important. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. One of the things that this verse is telling us is that the peace that each and every one of us wants, whether we acknowledge that it's peace with God or not, the things that, are, that we feel tension about in our lives, the things that we feel concern about in our lives, the things that we feel disturbed about in our lives, the fix for that is the person of Jesus Christ. You have peace because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done. We do not have peace with God because of what we have done. You do not have peace with God because you are a more moral person than your neighbor. You do not have peace with God because you haven't committed the same kinds of sins that history's worst tyrants have committed. That's not why you have peace with God. What this text tells us is that we only have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. And this is good news because it just frees up the pressure. What this means is, is I don't have to pretend to be more moral than somebody else. I don't have to play that morality game. And neither do you. You don't have to act like you're better. You don't have to live in that way. You don't have to live in a way that says, I need to be living a life of constant improvement. I need to do better. I need to do better. I need to do better. I need to add more things to the side of the scale that tips it in my favor. Because we have peace with God through what Jesus Christ has done, we can accept that and then you know what we can do? We can relax. We can have peace. We can have comfort because of what Jesus has done. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't live lives of faithfulness and strive to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. But what it means is, is I can just be comfortable that Jesus has saved me and he's done the work. And I can tell you as a person who has constantly lived a life of striving, when you get to that point, you will, not, you will look back on all of your striving and you will ask yourself, what was I thinking? Why was I doing that? Why was I trying to earn my salvation? See, this is a free gift. And then Romans 8.1, this is page 704 in that Bible, says this. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? It's good news. 
There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I can, I can be free to live my life in accordance with God's plan because I'm not condemned. I can be free to do that. One of the things that I've learned to do over the past couple years is I used to really manage my running log a lot. Like how many miles I ran, time, all that kind of stuff. Like really manage my running log a lot. And that used to matter. And then one day I was, I was running up at the monument. I was running up, the, running up that trail along the monument. And it was one of, the day, one of those days where, where the clouds are really low. And I kind of came through the clouds and I looked out. And all I could see was, was the top of the clouds. It was, really, it was really beautiful. And I did this thing that for a personality like mine was, was really the opposite. I took my phone out and I took a picture of it. See, I stopped being so focused on that thing that I could just enjoy the space that I was in. And when we live lives where we are confident in the work that Jesus has done for us, you know what that frees us up to do? It frees us to enjoy life. It frees us to not live out of concern and worry and fear and condemnation. It just frees us up to enjoy life. To enjoy the company of other people. To take a beautiful picture. And maybe you don't take a picture. Maybe you just enjoy it. This is the life that God wants us to live. There's now no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. He hasn't freed us so we would continue to live in the penalty of our sins. And then at the end of Romans 8, this is on 705. This is Romans 8, 38 and 39. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is the gospel. And what this means is once we've entered into this relationship with God, nothing can separate us from him. Nothing can separate us from him. Nothing, nothing, the word means nothing. Nothing can separate us from him. And again, what this does is it just frees me up to live the life that God has called me to live. Not concerned, not worried, not anxious, not fearful, not wondering if I'm going to add something to the other side of that scale and it's going to tip them back. 
Because when we enter into that relationship with Christ, Jesus is over here. There, there is no scale. There is no thing that can take us away from God. And that is the good news. This is the hope and this is the promise of our salvation. We're not separated from God because of our sin. We live new lives and we're freed from the penalty of our sin. And this, this gospel isn't just something that we, that we tell to other people. But this gospel is something that as Christians, we're, we're called to live this out. We're called to be demonstrators of this. So if we were to go back and we were to read through these verses, we're just going to recognize that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what that means is when someone else sins, like they prove this to be true. Doesn't that free us up from having to judge their sinfulness and their brokenness? The ways of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And what that means is when someone sins, when someone sins against me, I don't have to get them back because God knows what's going on. And I don't say that in a judgmental way, in a harsh way. What I say is God knows. And this frees me up to love people. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we're sinners. When you have a conversation with someone, why doesn't God love me? Well, if God would do this, then I would do that. See, we have the opportunity to talk about Jesus. We can use John 3.16 if you want to. Don't hold up a placard in front of their face. But this is how God loved you. He gave his one and only son. And all you have to do, all you have to do is accept it. Declare that he's Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from, a de- from the dead. And you'll be saved. Because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is saved. And since we've been made right with God through Jesus Christ, we have peace with him. God is no longer at war with you. He's no longer at war with your soul. You're not condemned and nothing can separate you. Isn't that a good gospel? Isn't that a simple gospel? Isn't that a non-complex gospel? The thing that I just invite you to do is respond. Just respond. If you have never placed your faith in Christ, I just invite you to do that today. You know, notice I'm not telling you that hell is worse than, worse than having your eyeballs roasted in your head. Like this is just a more complete gospel because it's not about hell avoidance. It's about living the life that God has for you. And those are two very different things. So I just invite you to respond. And one of the ways that we respond is we're baptized. If you've never done that, we, um, we have filled our baptistry today. 
If this is something that you've been thinking about, pondering, praying through, like I just want to give you the opportunity to respond in this way today. And if you're thinking to yourself, why didn't bring the right clothes? Like we've all been unintentionally wet before. We have towels in the back. It'll be okay. But I invite you to respond to this. I I invite you to respond to this offer of life. And maybe you don't want to be baptized today. Maybe that's not a decision that you want to make. Maybe you just want to talk through this. Um, In a couple minutes, myself, um, my wife is going to be over there with me. I've asked our elders to be over there. If you just want someone to pray with you, if you want to talk with someone about this, we just want to be open and available for you this morning. And if you want to be baptized, we'll do it. We're ready for that. It's what we've been praying for all week long, that people would respond to the good news of Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I pray that we would just hear your simple words calling us to respond to you. For those who struggle with their idea of the way that you have loved them, I pray that they would see what you have done for them, which is enough, which is everything, which is not insufficient. For those of us who may still be living in fear and condemnation, but have placed our faith in Christ, I pray that we would, I pray that we would accept these promises as true. And as I've done so many times in my life, when I feel condemned, when I feel fearful, when I feel like you haven't done enough, I just repeat these verses over and over and over and claim them as though they are true because they are true. I pray for those who have been considering baptism that they would make that choice today. I pray for those who have been wondering what a deeper faith life looks like. I pray that they would make the decision today to talk with someone about that so that we might help them draw closer to you. In your son's name we pray, amen.